0: This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio
1: WA.
2: Hello there, how are you today? And it's quite a hot one around most parts of the state today, but you know there's been quite a bit of rain about, especially through some parts of the wheat belt this season, and that means getting the crop off is, well, a bit of a slow process, and many farmers are going to be harvesting through the holidays.
3: Trying to harvest through that Christmas New Year period, which is a nightmare. You know, the whole country shuts down. Um, So come Christmas Eve till, um, you know, two days after New Year's, almost every business in the state shuts down. And so hopefully CBH keep running through that period. But, I mean, they must find it incredibly difficult for staff. So... Yeah, it's it's almost they might as well just declare it a national holiday, I think, now. That's just the federal government come out and says, Right, no one's working in that period and we'll all just disappear for a week and come back afterwards. I mean, what else can you do? It
2: is challenging to find staff during that period of time, that week between Christmas and New Year's. Rob Edgerton Wilburton who farms in the Great Southern, but it's pretty widespread. This season, with the rain that's been around and that delay to harvest, I wonder how you're tackling that situation. What plans you've got in place, maybe extra storage at your place to cater for that, let me know on the text zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Text through and have your say. It is 6 past 12 here on the Country Hour and the state's chief veterinarian, Michelle Roden, says WA's testing protocols for virulent foot rot are are reasonably robust, but nothing is ever 100%. This follows news that virulent foot rot has been detected in Western Australia with a ram imported from the eastern states testing positive to the reportable disease. Michelle Rodent, how did this case come to your attention? Yes, yeah, so
4: sure. The West Australian sheep industry has had a virulent foot rot program running for over 40 years. And in the last decade, the Sheep and Goat Industry Funding Scheme has been funding the program. So as part of that program, the industry do a number of things as part of their aims. One is to keep the number of properties um, with virulent foot rot at a low level in Western Australia. And the other is to make sure that import conditions on sheep and goats entering Western Australia are in place so that we minimise the risk of bringing um, virulent foot rot into WA.
2: So, how did it come to your attention, this particular case?
4: Well, obviously, the funding program um, has got deep herd operating the activities. So, industry and government have been working together for a number of years and have moved the number of properties in Western Australia from 15% down. To 1%. And when this property came, when these um, consignment came through the border. So they came through the border in October and in November, as part of the post border entry checks, they were picked up as having virulent foot rot. Are the livestock tested at the border? No. So the border conditions for importing sheep into Western Australia are undertaken in three parts as the risk mitigation. So there's the pre border. Activities, which is declarations by the owner that they don't have virulent foot rot, declarations by the vet that they've inspected the sheep and they're not concerned that they've got virulent foot rot, and also that they've undertaken liver fluke drenching, which is another disease that the import conditions manage. And then at the border, they underdo um, a further series of checks on the paperwork to make sure everything is in place and that the animals are healthy and that there's nothing. Wrong with them. And then post border, there are activities. So then the animals moved under inspector's direction to the property. And then they have to be um, inspected for foot rot between 21 and 35 days after arrival. And again, between 90 and 100 days. So they're inspected twice. So it was picked up as
2: per our normal routine at the 21 to 35-day inspection. Considering all the wet weather issues in the eastern states with all the flooding, which obviously providing the perfect conditions for foot rot to thrive, is Mm. now the time for Deep Herd to introduce testing at the border to stop something like this from happening again?
4: Yeah, well, obviously the testing takes three to five days, and doing it at the border is not a very practical method. I mean, there's animal welfare concerns about holding sheep at the border for that length of time. So I think the actual protocol is is quite sound. We do follow up with our eastern states counterparts. So I've notified the CBOs in the respective jurisdiction, and they've gone. They're doing a test on it because most jurisdictions have control programs. One of the concerns that, you know, there is is that I guess in every jurisdiction, so well just to go back a step, Western Australia's had this program running for, for over 40 years. We've actually got rid of most of the highly the strains of virulent foot rot that are really impactful. And so the ones that are left here in Western Australia are at the lower end of the virulent foot rot spectrum. And as I said, there's about 1% of properties under quarantine. In the eastern states, it's sort of a slightly different um, scale. And so sometimes we find that people in the eastern states sort of go, it might... Be a different spectrum over there, and they might be thinking it's benign foot rot, but it's actually virulent. So we do ask that if there's any signs that they undertake any testing, and we volunteer
2: to do the testing in Western Australia if that's needed. But, but, but say, all the paperwork, was, would... in the, the paperwork yep. was in order. The paperwork was in order. The declarations as they as the um, livestock crossed the border. Yeah, yeah, they were. Mm. But considering the weather situation in the east, do you think it's time to make a change? to tighten things up even further to prevent another case of virulent foot rot getting into WA?
4: Yeah, so I think um, I, I guess it's, it's the it's, – so no program is 100% and that's why the risk mitigation is pre-border, border and, and
2: post-border. No, but circumstances and, have changed, haven't they? I mean, it's major mm-hmm. flooding in the east which, yeah. you know, contributes to this foot rot living and spreading So just under those circumstances, is it time to revisit the sort of testing or protocols at the border?
4: Well, it's not the border where we would undertake any of the testing, as I said, because there's actually really a lot of logistical issues around doing testing at the border. We can certainly look at our pre-border checks, but we have had a vet visit the property, inspect the rams before they were loaded and sign that they were okay. So, I mean, I think that's reasonably robust, but nothing is 100%.
2: Just catching up with the department's chief vet, Dr Michelle Roden, today talking about this case of virulent foot rot that's been detected in WA with a ram imported from the eastern states testing positive to this disease. Where is the ram from? Um,
4: The ram's from the eastern states. So it came across in a shipment of rams on the 11th of October from the east and there was um, a number of rams in that shipment all from the same property. Can you be any more specific
2: than that? Because one of the people impacted by uh, the tracing that's now going on here in mm. WA said that uh, the ram that's on his property was from South Australia. So is that where it's come from?
4: Well, all the rams came from the same property, so um, I guess that's where your gentleman has said it's from.
2: <laughs> and that's you can confirm that? That's from South Australia? Yeah, they're from South Australia. Okay. And th- is there any room for improvement in this process?
4: Well, we're always looking at um, processes, but, I mean, it's been in place for um, a number of years and um, we're using new tests, which are much more efficient. And I guess the the issue that we have is that if you can't visibly see the disease at the point that it leaves the property, you actually have to wait long enough for you to see it. So that's why the animals come in under uh, inspector's direction. We recommend people keep them separate not always practical. They want to put them out with the use, but we recommend they keep them separate because they're actually not cleared until 100 days after they enter Western Australia, which is the 21 to 35 day one and then another one at 90 to 100
2: days. And if both those checks are clear, then they're cleared. How many confirmed cases of foot rot in WA are you investigating?
4: Um, Not quite sure the exact question, I can tell you that we have 61 businesses in quarantine for foot rot in Western Australia. And that's that's the sort of 1% average that we've been on for quite a few number of years, if that's what you're talking about.
2: So that that's 61 properties are involved in the traceback exercise? No, that, no, 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 no.
4: So in the traceback, there's six properties. So basically um, for this ram that's come in, we've gone immediately to the other rams that were on the truck that came from the same property and we have gone and investigated to make sure that they're not got foot rot as well, same so come from the same property, transported on the same truck, so obviously a risk there. We've contacted all of those within two days. We've taken all the all the testing and they're awaiting their results at this period.
2: Right. So there at this point there is only one confirmed case of foot That's rot right. in WA and the No. No.
4: No. So in this particular consignment, there is one case from this particular import that's come in. But there's 61 properties in Western Australia with virulent foot rot because it's a program that's been underway for 40 years. So this is not the only case of virulent foot rot in Western Australia.
2: No, but it's the one that's come over the border. That's that's the only one case that's come across the border in this consignment. that's right. Okay. And uh, with those six properties that are now basically in quarantine, aqua- across what sort of area, which regions of the state? Well, they
4: range pretty much in the, um, from the Midwest to the Great Southern.
2: Okay. How long is this process going to take then, the, the trace back just to make sure that there are no other further cases have come in from the eastern states, South Australia?
4: Probably a few days from the taking of the samples.
2: Okay, and then what do we learn from this process then?
4: Well I think um, I think there's always some messaging for industry around it. I mean obviously purchasing animals from the eastern states comes with some risk of diseases that are more prevalent in the East than they are in Western Australia, and that includes foot rot and liver fluke that no border conditions are one hundred percent effective and and we do uh, recommend to producers that they keep the animals segregated until the all the checks are undertaken, and that you know we'll continue to work with industry who 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 fund the program and have a really good knowledge of um, what the program's all about.
2: Michelle, good to talk to you, thank you thank you. bye. Dr Michelle Roden. she is the chief veterinarian with the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development, and just catching up with her following the news that first was reported here on the country on Friday that virulent foot rot has been detected in Western Australia with a ram imported from South Australia testing positive to the reportable disease. 17 past 12 on the text from Peter. Foot rot, let me guess, it'll make meat cheaper for Perth consumers? Bit of a mess getting clear answers, ain't it? Says Peter. And this from Stuart. Uh, Well done, Belinda. Very impressed with your interview. Once again, the... Department of Ag is failing their duty of care to protect the agricultural industry here in WA. Obviously, their procedures are failing our ag industry. Well done for being firm in your questions. Thank you, Stuart. 44 18 past 12. David Swan is from Swan's Veterinary Services. He says virulent foot rot does appear every now and again, but it is a serious disease. And it's hard to eradicate.
5: Virulent foot rot can be a very severe condition, uh, and it's exacerbated by uh, wet conditions. So it's sort of worse in the wetter, colder areas where it survives better. And it can cause uh, very significant, severe lameness. And, and also, because it's a notifiable, quarantinable disease, there's major, uh, you know, implications to the um, you know uh, the productivity of the farm.
6: In this case, we understand it's a sheep that's infected, but is it also quite contagious for goats and cattle as well?
5: Certainly goats carry it. Um, the, the cattle forms different, so it's not spread from cattle to sheep.
6: For the actual animals themselves, what sort of effect does it have on them? Are they unable to walk, that type of thing?
5: It starts off as a uh, erosion between the claws, and then it spreads into damaging um, the whole hoof structure, and they get all cracks and split, and uh, and they get very lame. And it's uh, generally multiple feet, often uh, often more than one feet. So you get multiple feet affected, and that so that uh, severely impacts their ability to graze and move, and etc. Like when you got bad foot rot, it's you know there's a welfare aspect to it as well.
6: Mm. So that would be the first sign is lameness, is it? Does it smell as well?
5: And it, yeah, it's got a peculiar smell to it. If you've had a lot to do with it, it is, is um, it is a recognisable smell.
6: Doesn't sound very nice anyway.
5: No, 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 it is. Uh, uh, but there's various strains of it. There's benign forms and there's virulent forms and, and obviously it ranges from very benign to very virulent. And so depending which strain you get, will have an impact on, um, on its effects and its uh, you know ease of re- or otherwise of eradication.
6: Talking to people uh, up this way where I am in Geraldton, there's quite a few memories about a really bad outbreak in the 1980s where a lot of stock were taken off properties. It seemed really difficult to control. What's been your experience, David, in terms of managing an outbreak and, and getting rid of it on a property?
5: I have been involved in in getting rid of it in really big properties that are quite wet where it's considered difficult, but it requires an unbelievable effort from the farmer to do that because it just involves so much yarding, tipping up, foot bathing, foot pairing, treatments, inspections. Like on on a big property, you actually got to be concerned about the welfare of the farmer and the staff as well. It is such a big job to get rid of it if they have virulent foot rot, So it's something you don't want. It's very important to apply good biosecurity principles to your own farm to try and keep
6: it out. So when you are moving stock, you're either buying animals in or you've had them on adjustment. they're coming back onto your property. Are people always doing the checks that they should be doing?
5: Well, clearly not. No, definitely not. It's like anything. Some are really good at it. Some pay lip service to it and some are not considering it at all there's probably not too many people these days not considering it at all I would like to think most farmers are you know very professional operators now and
7: and are and aware
5: of the risks of the you know to the operation and uh, taking note of what they need to do to protect that but We all get slack at times, don't we? We need a bit of a tune-up and a bit of a reminder of what we should be doing. I have zero knowledge of this particular outbreak and it might be, uh, you know, everyone might have done the right things and and it might have swept through the system. I have no idea. Like the Animal Health um, uh, National heat uh, Sheep Health Declarations are out there. They are underutilised. Same with the cattle ones. They are underutilised by buyers. And that's a form where, you know, you just say to your stock agent, look, I want a sheep health declaration with that. And uh, and the seller will fill out and they talk about, you know, Arkansas and sheep free of virulent foot rot.
6: So is that the most important thing, do you think, that sheep health declaration?
5: Yeah, it is. It's uh, highly recommended, but it's, it is actually poorly utilised, I think.
6: Has there been outbreaks of virulent foot rot in WA? Do we still see the odd flare up or not?
5: Oh, yeah. You know, there's, there's, uh, look, uh, you'd be better off to speak to the department. I haven't discussed it with them for a couple of years now. Uh, Yeah, it's an ongoing issue.
6: Where does it come from then if we can't quite get rid of it? Is it, what, residual or something in the soil?
5: Uh, It'll be residual for a while. It is difficult to eradicate and requires great attention to detail. So if someone hasn't got the capacity to you know, muster them regularly enough, tip them up, do all the things involved in getting rid of it, that it might just grumble away at a, low, at a low level for years on that property.
6: And if we look at the conditions this year, we've had a wet harvest uh, for a lot of the grain growing area where the majority of the state's sheep are, and it's starting to warm up now. Are they conditions for foot rot?
5: Yeah, spring, yeah, you're exactly right. Warm, wet conditions is, uh, is exactly it. So, When you're in an eradication phase, you know you need the department to come and do a um, inspection. I think it's a double inspection to uh, to declare uh, that you've eradicated it, and they do that in spring when it's most likely to show. Because over summer, when everything dries out and it's hot, it kind of uh, it dries up. There may be not much evidence of it in the sheep. Uh, They might be lame, but it's harbored there within the uh, the wall of the hoof ready to uh, sort of spring out again next winter, spring. And that's where the problems um,
2: come about. David Swan, he's from Swan's Veterinary Services and he was speaking to Joe Prendergast. 24 past 12 here on The Country Hour. And in response to the interview you just heard with the state's chief veterinarian, Michelle Roden, in terms of that uh, case of virulent foot rot being detected in WA just with the one ram, imported from South Australia, testing positive to the reportable disease. There are There is tracing going on. There are six other properties involved with that traceback process. But at this point, it is only the one ram from South Australia that's been um, detected with the virulent foot rot that's here in WA. Uh, in response to that, Hayden says, crikey, come on, lady, get the facts right. How many cases of foot rot are in WA today? Uh, This from Dave. I think you need to apologise to the lady on then. Spoke to her like she had no idea. She sounded like she'd lost interest in speaking to you. Well, to be honest, Dave, I don't think she wanted to speak to me from the get-go. The request to Deep has been in since Friday when we first spoke about the detection um, here in WA. Thank you for that, though, Dave. And this from Rob. Uh, Belinda, good to see deep herd being flushed out, Reef foot rot issue. Not much there. Don't know why it took them so long to talk. 0448 922 And this just threw too. It's not like WA is free of the disease. That is true. Thank you for that text. 0448 922 It is 25
8: past 12. You're part of the Country
9: Hour with Belinda Varisgetti on ABC Local Radio WA.
2: The supermarket giant Coles is expanding its carbon-neutral beef into New South Wales, South Australia and Tasmania. And the supermarket's already been testing the waters in Victoria. So it claims to have Australia's first own brand carbon-neutral beef product Coles also claims it certifies every farm and facility in the whole supply chain to establish data and information on everything associated with emissions. Daniel Mathie is part of the supply chain. He's a cattle producer from Holbrook in New South Wales and said he did have to do some work to the farm to make his beef carbon neutral.
10: We've planted a lot of trees, uh, so these they have the dual advantage of Offsetting emissions as well as providing shade for the herd and preventing erosion. Uh, We've implemented best practice soil and pasture management to increase the amount of carbon we're storing in the soil. So soil testing paddocks, applying the appropriate uh, nutrients that are required for those paddocks. Uh, Pasture management is targeted rotational grazing, uh, leaving the correct residual ground cover, uh, putting more area into perennial pastures. So there's more green feed, more time of the year going at an extra effort to get the best cattle genetics available to increase herd productivity. Uh, we've installed multiple solar panels for farm electricity use, including pumping water to our cattle.
9: How many panels uh, have you got
10: now? We've got about 50 kilowatts of panels.
9: So how has Coles been helping you out in that regard? I mean, obviously they're paying you for your beef. Do they give you a premium or do they support you in other ways?
10: That's right. Uh, Coles is, is paying a premium and they are... Doing an excellent job of providing us with the resources uh to people to talk to to able to minimize our carbon emissions
9: right and when you say you've been doing rotational grazing so you are obviously resting quite a bit of the land when you're doing that and you're you're putting nutrients on to promote the growth so the more that your pasture grows the more carbon the grass can store in the soil yeah so that's right so what are you seeing in terms of your carbon levels
10: Uh, they have been increasing steadily uh, over the years, but it is a very—it's a long-term game uh, with the soil carbon. I think some more short-term things where we're seeing immediate results from uh, herd productivity. So we're putting a very strong emphasis on turning our cattle off at a younger age uh, and higher weights when possible. Um, so how does that help
9: in terms of your carbon footprint?
10: So the carbon footprint is measured on the basis of kilograms of live weight sold. So if each as a breeding producer uh, we have to run a cow and if we that cow isn't getting in calf it's gone and for every cow we run their progeny we want to put on the maximum amount of weight gain as fast as possible uh, to justify having that cow and to reduce that cow's emissions and the offspring's emission per kilogram of light gained
9: so I suppose, in some respects, the faster they grow, the quicker they get to an age that they can be. They can they can be processed, and that has less impact on the environment. Is that fair to say?
10: Yes, definitely.
9: And what about your carbon credits? Because that's the thing that you could sell. Have you sold those to Coles?
10: No, we're still in the the uh, early stages of that process. We're investigating all our options. Um, so no, not at this stage. Because a lot of of farmers are getting advice
9: not to sell because obviously that might shut you out of other markets, particularly in the EU.
10: Yeah, so we we are treading carefully in that regard. We are uh, engaging with private consultants to make sure that we make the right decisions. Um, But Coles is definitely excited to be buying carbon credits from us directly, uh, but we just want to make sure that we're making the right decision
9: also at the launch today in Sydney's, Dr Stephen Wiedemann is the Managing Director of Integrity Ag and Environment. One of the key things around this is, is consumer confidence in that message that this is a more sustainable product. How does Coles measure that?
0: Yeah, look, as as science partner, that's part of our role. We do that certification work. We certify effectively the emissions and any carbon removals on every farm that's in the program and uh, right through the supply chain as well, so through processing as well. And then it's not just us and our word for it either. Our work is then third-party verified And finally, it's approved by Climate Active, who are the the sort of certifying body, and they're part of the federal government.
9: And what are you finding when you you look across all of the producers, like Daniel Mathey in New South Wales and Holbrook? We did ask him how much carbon he's storing. We didn't get a number off that. What are you seeing across the board?
0: Yeah, look, the tricky thing is it takes a long time to certify a farm to be carbon neutral. Uh, in a way that we can put it on a shelf, on a brand. Uh, so that's realistically a five year journey. So we're confident we're delivering that um, that carbon neutral beef and it like, probably sounds a little bit ambiguous, but part of our challenge is uh, take an issue like soil carbon, you're, you're three to five years to certify how much soil carbon you're building. So it, it's in process, it's, it, it takes takes time to get that certification bit done.
9: I suppose the other question really is about carbon credits. Like Coles has has a, a desire to be carbon neutral too in the future, but but Daniel's saying oh, I want to weigh up my options in terms of selling you carbon credits.
0: Uh yeah, look, carbon credits are a part of the picture. They they're a useful sort of tool uh and uh for my part I think it is best that the credits off a farm go with the product off that farm and uh Uh, you know, really transferred through the market that way.
9: Meaning that they would go to Coles?
0: Look, in this instance, uh, look, I think Coles is is, is taking a leading role in this area, but I'm sure it won't be the last. Industry and MLA here have the target of 50% of beef going through low carbon and carbon neutral supply chains um, in in the next decade. So this is really the, you know, the leading edge of it. um, And we'll see a lot more to come.
2: Dr Stephen Wiedemann from Coles speaking to David Claughton about this morning's launch of the company's carbon-neutral beef range going into New South Wales, South Australia and Tasmania at this point. 28 to 1 here on the Country Hour and Jonathan Beale is here with the headlines.
11: Thanks, Belinda. The Federal Opposition's Indigenous Affairs Minister, Julian Les- Lisa says the Liberal Party is waiting for more detail on the proposed voice to Parliament before deciding whether to support it. The Nationals yesterday announced it will oppose the voice, saying it won't improve the lives of Indigenous Australians. Mr Lisa says the Albanese government needs to come clean on the detail of what's being proposed. The Federal Attorney-General Mark Dreyfus, says he hopes tougher penalties for companies that don't keep customer data safe will lead to better protection of private information. Companies that don't protect data properly will now be subjected to larger fines after Federal Parliament passed new laws yesterday. The recent cyber attacks on Medibank and Optus have highlighted shortcomings with the current rules. And the White House has criticised Donald Trump for dining with someone who the U.S. Justice Department describes as a white supremacist. The meeting between Nick Fuentes and the former president has also drawn rare criticism from fellow Republicans, one of whom accused Mr Trump of empowering extremism. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says it's critical to condemn Mr Trump's behaviour. She says there's no place for what she calls such vile forces in society. More news, Belinda at one o'clock.
2: Jonathan, thank you for the update. 27 to one. You're
9: with Belinda Baraschetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA.
2: Great to have you along. Some resources news between now and one o'clock with... Calyx and lithium miner Pilbara Minerals just entering into a joint venture to decarbonise the lithium refining process. And also Australia's only silicon manufacturer, Simcoa, has just brought 1,100 hectares of land in WA's southwest to plant some bluegum trees. And just before one, off to me, for the results of today's sheep market. Right now to the Bureau of Meteorology, Caroline Crow is with you today, Caroline. Uh, pretty hot temperatures around. Well, I guess right around the state. Can you give us an idea of what sort of temperatures we're experiencing? Firstly, in the southwest land division.
12: Hi, Belinda. It's actually Catherine. They always do that to me. Think I'm Caroline, but that's okay. Um, we, it is really hot in the southwest today. We're um, going for 37 in Perth and there's a whole um, area um, sort of extending from the Pilbara down through the inland Gascoyne into the central west of above 40s today. So uh, we've got that high in the Bight and the west coast trough. It's a very typical summer pattern and we've had a, a pretty cold November so far. So we're finally um, back into summer with those um, hot temperatures down the west coast. Um, so, yeah, sunny and dry throughout the southern half of the state. Uh, today, and we'll see northeast and southeasterly winds uh, freshening tonight, moving into tomorrow, the trough will still be there, but it will move inland um, from late morning so um Timing wise uh, will just depend on whether we um, get to thirty five or a little bit more uh, for Perth and the west coast, but uh, probably more significant is that um, those really hot temperatures will be just inland it 'll be above forty degrees for parts of the wheat belt the Gascoigne and above thirty five through the great Southern, uh, in addition to that fairly gusty north- northerly winds and a pretty broad area of thunderstorm activity as well so um, Watch out for some fire weather warnings there. And um, the thunderstorms that we get through the Wheat Belt and the Great Southern could well be uh, pretty gusty and dry. So, um, yeah, we're hoping for not too many fire ignitions with those. Um, on Thursday, the trough will move a little further east and uh, we'll get a little bit of a, a, a low-pressure system along the south coast moving along with that. And we'll have a weak ridge moving in from the west. So most of the thunderstorm activity will just be sitting through far eastern parts of the uh, southwest land division in the morning and then moving off uh, through the gold fields during the day. Um So much cooler along the west coast on Thursday, but still um, above 35 degrees for eastern parts of the wheat belt and the Great Southern as well. And on Friday, uh, the ridge really does become the dominant feature for the southwest land division, uh, with a weak trough branch um, uh, pushing back towards the west coast. So a bit of a southeasterly surge in the south and uh, north of the trough um, through the central west winds will be southwesterly. But it will still be uh, fairly clear. The thunderstorm activity will have moved further north, And on Saturday, very similar synoptic pattern uh, with the ridge being the dominant feature and just a weak trough there, Um, but a bit more of a southeasterly surge along the south coast. And with that, a few onshore flow showers, Um, pretty good sea breezes along the west coast there as well.
2: And Catherine, if you are under one of those thunderstorms, what sort of um, measurements, rainfall measurements are you expecting?
12: Look, it does look like there will be some rainfall around. Um, Really hard to predict with these isolated sort of storms, maybe 15 millimetres in some, but and others can be just dry and gusty because it is quite dry underneath. So uh, we get the Virgo where the rain falls, but doesn't quite um, make it to the ground. All right,
2: let's move into northern and eastern parts. How's it looking this afternoon and for the rest of the week?
12: Yeah, so it's been really active through the Kimberley with uh, thunderstorms and still some decent falls um, in the 24 hours to 9am this morning. Uh, That trough is still sitting uh, from the inland Kimberley down the Pilbara coast and so um, there are still some thunderstorms firing through the northern Kimberley and just a couple through the Pilbara and north interior at the moment Um, so I'd expect to see them fire up again a little bit more in the afternoon Um, and those storms as well could be quite windy because they're pretty dry underneath, uh, certainly the ones through inland parts. Uh, we've got the Fitzroy River in a minor flood uh, warning but that is um, decreasing and will probably go out of warning uh, later today or tomorrow um, as rainfall decreases and uh, from Wednesday tomorrow we'll see those showers and thunderstorms contracting northwards uh, closer to the Kimberley coast and then uh, beyond that Thursday and onwards really um, starting to dry out uh, through the northern half um, just yeah, in a more easterly flow and with the moisture um, from upper level systems uh, moving away So we'll start to see, obviously, with uh, drier air and a lack of thunderstorm activity, we'll see temperatures increasing back into the mid, well, low to mid 40s uh, from Saturday.
2: And the warnings this afternoon?
12: So we have, well, no strong wind warnings today, but we do have one tomorrow for the Esperance Coast. Uh, We currently have a fire weather warning for the Midwest Coast, and I expect there'll be a number of them out uh, tomorrow through inland parts. And as I mentioned, a minor flood warning for the Fitzroy River.
2: Catherine, thank you so much for those details. It is 21 to 1, and Richard Hudson will go through the rainfall figures in just a moment. But first... ABC Radio. Fire
13: ban information. Yeah, total fire ban is in place today for the city of Greater Geraldton. So that's a local government area in the Midwest Gascoyne region. So if you're in that area, that means today you can't light, maintain or use a fire in the open air. You're not allowed to carry out any activity that could start a fire. So that includes open fires for things like cooking, camping, outdoor entertainment, no fire pits and bonfires, no hot work such as metalwork, grinding, welding, gas cutting. And uh, that's um, except for business and industry if regulatory conditions are met. And also you're not allowed to do any off-road activity using a four-wheel drive, quad bike, motorcycle, bobcat or similar vehicle, except for agricultural purposes or by business and industry if regulatory conditions are met. And a reminder, because we're sort of at the start of summer, if you like, if a harvest and vehicle movement ban has been imposed by your local government, off-road activity for agriculture or business and industry, including harvesting, is banned and exceptions are made for essential services. but. The City of Greater Geraldton does have a harvest ban in place right now, so that does apply for this particular case. If you're a bit unsure and you want more information, just do a search for DFES and Total Fire Ban. So D-F-E-S and Total Fire Ban. It can even be one word and you should find all the information you need. And again, because it's the start of summer, just be reminded that you can be fined up to twenty-five grand or jailed for a year or both if you breach a total fire ban. But, yeah, just getting to the rain. Again, um, same story as we've had recently. The only real rain for the whole state was in the Kimberley and not surprising with it being the start of the wet season. Bedford Downs Airstrip 9, Billaluna 11, Camballan 7, Elquestro 45, Gibb River 23, Columbaroo 17... Kingston Resh forty two, Cunnamulla at the airport thirty four, but then the Deep Earth Station out. Did you with sixty at Lake Argyle Resort fifty. Leopold Downs, 5, Marion Downs, 10, Mount Barnett, 6, Mount Krause 17, Old Mornington Homestead, uh, 7, Siddons Creek, 31, Sturt Creek, 17, Theta, 5, Wyndham Airport, 20, Yampi Sound, 23, Yulumbu, 8, and then in the Pilbara, there was a little bit actually, Pardue, 5, Telfer 24 and Warawagain 14. But then, apart from that, there was pretty much no rainfall anywhere else in any region uh, in all of WA, not even a mill. But uh, hey, Bill, the um, global energy company Santos has uh, just notified the Australian Stock Exchange to say a small gas leak has been identified on a main gas trunk line from its John Brooks platform in the Carnarvon Basin. So this is just off the northwest coast of WA, around about 75 k's off the coast. The statement says Santos became aware of the leak during routine activities on the normally unstaffed platform. and. It says the platform and pipeline were immediately shut down and depressurised and all uh, personnel were demobilised. I'm not sure what that means. They were removed, possibly. Sounds like a James Bond term, but um, Santos has notified all relevant regulatory bodies and the interesting part of this is that gas is crucial at the moment for Western Australia's energy suppliers. It's been reported in the media this morning that Santos's John Brooks platform is the main source of gas to the Varanus Island processing facility, which supplied around about a quarter of the gas used in WA over the weekend. So Santos believes it could take four to six weeks to repair this, which means we might have some problems for their energy supplies in the lead up to Christmas, particularly if the repairs aren't done in a four to six week period, if it drags on a bit. It'll be interesting to see how that progresses. The Conservation Council of WA have weighed in on this. They're calling on regulators to come down hard on companies like Santos. The council says um, Santos seems to have learnt nothing from a series of embarrassing and dangerous incidents associated with the Varanus Island plant over the last 18 months. And the two things that it mentions are a botched platform deconstruction, which the regulator said had a high potential for multiple fatalities, and also... Uh, the council brings to attention that uh, Santos was ordered by the National Offshore Petroleum Safety and Environmental Management Authority to stop drilling off the WA coast until it fixed faulty safety equipment and a 25,000 lit- uh, thousand 25, dollar litre oil spill where three dolphins were found dead. So it'd be interesting to see uh, what happens with that particular gas leak anyway.
2: Thanks for that, Richard. It's... Quarter to one here on the Country Hour. Off to mushay just before one o'clock and Terry Birkin's going to go through the yarding and the prices at the sheep market today. First, though, technology company Calix and the lithium miner Pilbara Minerals have just entered into a joint venture to decarbonise the lithium refining process. The two companies have been given the green light to set up a new demonstration plant. The Calix Chief Executive, Phil Hodgson, thinks could be a game changer.
1: It's pretty significant. The Australian spodumene industry, if you like, which is an ore mined in Western Australia largely, is the source of the majority of the world's lithiums today for lithium-ion batteries. But most of that spodumene is dug up and sent overseas and it's basically 94% waste. Uh, It's only 6% lithium oxide. And so one of the things that we wanted to do here in Australia, obviously, as as part of critical minerals or battery supply chain, is onshore, more processing here. So we capture more value here. And so what this represents is a new way to start to produce higher value lithium salts from our spodumene mining, cut down the amount of waste, cut down the amount of carbon that's produced and and do that with an Australian homegrown technology from Calyx, and obviously combined with Pilbara Mineral's lithium expertise. So it's a very important joint venture and uh, demonstration project for this technology.
9: What is your technology and how does it work to take that spodumene and
1: create lithium? It's just a new type of kiln or furnace. It's just a new way to heat stuff up, basically. Uh, Obviously, we've been heating things up for a long period of time as humans, and uh, most people will be familiar with a kiln. Uh, You've got a flame in there. You're heating up rocks, and and Bob's your uncle. But uh, interestingly enough, Uh, spodumene is not an easy thing to heat up without melting as soon as you melted it it's very difficult to extract the lithium and secondly when you're mining spodumene you produce a lot of very fine particles and they're not suitable for uh, conventional kilns what calyx has developed as a new way to heat stuff up is a new type of kiln it's a vertical tube it can be heated with renewable electrons you can have sort of elements around the outside of the tube doing the heating, so uh, absolutely connect through to wind or, or solar power. And it loves small particles. They basically get dropped down the centre of the tube, and, and it's the red hot walls of the tube radiating, heat into the particles that heats them up. Uh, and so we can heat up these particles without melting them. We heat them up just enough to crack them open, and then the lithium is extracted once they've been cracked open. So, so that's, that's the KLX technology and what it brings to, to this particular opportunity with Spodumene.
9: My understanding is Pilbara Minerals and Calix were working on a pilot that's now led to this demonstration plant. Could you walk me through that process and so I guess the work that's
1: already been done? Yeah, sure. We, we started on this idea about well, nearly two years ago now. The pilot facility is an electric-fired calciner, uh, renewably powered with solar panels that we have at Bacchus Marsh in Victoria. Calix Limited is using that for, for multiple different minerals testing and uh, we obtained some samples from Pilbara Minerals of their spogamine finds and started conducting that testing sort of 18 months ago now. And that testing proved highly prospective. We're able to convert the spodumene to an extractable form of, of lithium uh, without melting. And so clearly the technology sort of passed the test at pilot scale. Since then, we've decided to move to a demonstration plant, scaled-up version of that pilot-scale plant from 2,000 tonne per annum to 30,000 tonne per annum input. We're targeting about 3,000 tonnes per annum of lithium salt production from this facility. And that demonstration plant will be located in the Pilbara at Pilbara Minerals site. And today represents the, I guess, formalisation of all the joint venture agreements that we need to put in place to, to progress the demonstration project to the next stage. What we want to do, from a timing and milestone perspective, is reach the final investment decision point for this project by June next year. And at the moment, what's being undertaken is a full feasibility study for that project, including all of the economic factors and inputs, etc., as well as establishing the market for the lithium salt of which we've produced a small quantity already. Uh, should we pass that financial investment decision uh, around June next year, we then move into procurement detailed design, construction, all that sort of stuff. And, and so we're hopeful to have this demonstration planned up and running sometime in 2024.
2: Kalix Chief Executive Phil Hodgson speaking to Tom Robinson about a new demonstration lithium plant that is being set up in the Pilbara. It follows an 18-month scoping study and the project is supported by a $20 million federal government grant. 11 to 1. Australia's only silicon manufacturer, Simcoa, has just bought 1,100 hectares of land in WA's southwest to plant bluegum trees. The Bunbury based company makes high quality silicon metal. Vice President David Miles says the plan is to plant trees on that land in the Majumup Shire to make charcoal, which is important for making silicon. But he says Simcoa also wants to reduce its reliance on coal imports and lessen its carbon footprint.
8: And the intent is to start growing trees out for our own use, uh, so we can make charcoal for our silicon production.
12: So, what was so attractive about Manjimup for this land?
8: Basically, uh, it's got the right rainfall, uh, soil quality, and and it was available.
2: So, why was this something Simcoa decided? You know, you needed well, to do.
8: Simcoa needs uh, carbon. Uh, in particular, we need charcoal to make silicon the world is in uh, desperate need for uh, for silicon and uh, the best way of making silicon is to use uh, charcoal and particularly in this day and age of having to reduce carbon footprints you know it's essential for us to uh, stop the use of coal and to increase our uh, use of charcoal
12: so you will be able to get carbon
6: credits for this um,
8: that will be one of the side benefits but basically, our motivation is really to get the charcoal.
2: And that is David Miles. He's the vice president of Simcoa. He says they've already purchased seedlings they want to plant on that recently acquired land in the up Shire. And he hopes planting will be done by next winter. He was speaking to Georgia Hargreaves. Eight minutes to one. Well, with all the rain that's been around parts of the wheat belt at harvest time this season, getting the crop off is a slow process and many growers will be working right through Christmas and into the new year to get the job done. Rob edgerton Warburton Farms at Mobrup just over 300 kilometres southeast of Perth in the Great Southern. He says, with a rain delayed harvest, it's time to start thinking about some of the logistical challenges facing the industry over the next couple of months.
3: There's obviously problems with uh, grain storage and the logistics. You know, roads aren't getting any better, rail's got limitations on capacity, I think. Uh, also, if you look in our area, we uh, traditionally harvest. You know, we haven't even started yet, so let's say we started at the beginning of December, which means we're going to be running through late into January now. We normally take six to seven weeks to harvest. So if that's going to happen every year from now on, then really CBH just grinds to a halt post-New Year's. So we're really going to have to start relying on our own storage post, unless something changes in CBH where they, they can have the capacity to take more grain in January and open longer hours I think we're just going to be stuck with our own storage and I think that's probably where we're going to have to go into the future.
12: Starting harvest this late in the year is that something you normally do?
3: Yeah so the 25th of uh, November is a very typical start date for us We, we we typically have a go before then but we basically just waste a week harvesting two or three hours a day so we tend to wait until the 25th and um, unfortunately we would be going now if it wasn't for that rain last week but um, you know that's it we we live um, in the southwest and that's just what it is like you know we just get going when we get going and yeah hopefully we're ready when when it comes.
12: Starting late does that put you at any sort of disadvantage?
3: I don't think so it's um, I think the only disadvantage is is um, trying to harvest through that Christmas New Year period which is a nightmare you know the whole country shuts down and um, so Come Christmas Eve till, um, you know, two days after New Year's, almost every business in the state shuts down. And so hopefully CBH keep running through that period. But, I mean, they must find it incredibly difficult for staff. So... Yeah, it's it's almost. They might as well just declare it a national holiday, I think, now. that Just the federal government come out and says, right, no one's working in that period, and we'll all just disappear for a week and come back afterwards. I mean, what else can you do? So, yeah, it, it is difficult, and I know, you know a lot of farmers out east and up north who are contemplating that this year, um, are going to find out what we have to deal with every year. So it's really difficult. It's, it's, it's a difficult problem. And I, I feel for CBH that it's, it must be really difficult staffing. And look, no one wants, wants to work through Christmas. So when do you usually finish harvest by? Uh, so we aim usually most years between the 10th and the 18th of January. So that's, that's a normal sort of finish time. That's sort of where we aim. I think I've finished once in 27 years I've been farming here before Christmas. So that's not something we expect. (laughs) (laughs) So
12: when do you reckon you'll get started then?
3: Uh, Hopefully this afternoon. So uh, the sun's out, which is the first time I've seen the sun since uh, last Wednesday when we had all that rain so it's looking great so what we really need is for wednesday to be an absolutely horrendous hot day where they put a harvest ban on that would be ideal and um that would mean that everything's going to dry out and we're going to get a good week of harvest after that that's kind of what we need i think
12: so how do you feel to be finally getting in there
3: oh uh, yeah it's good it's been a long run up we only just finished har- uh, shearing last week so everyone's a bit tired from that so it's kind of been nice just to muck around in the workshop for a week getting ready But, uh, I don't know, harvest is always exciting. It's always exciting to get into the first few paddocks and see how it goes and then um, just sort of it takes a couple of weeks for everyone to wear themselves into the grind and then, yeah, we just push on. I think everyone's getting a bit edgy, to be honest. I'm getting edgy. I just want to get in there and get started.
2: Mobrup Farmer Rob Edgerton-Warburton speaking to Sophie Johnson. Five to one. Well, after one o'clock, make sure you're tuned in to the world today because one of the topics for discussion is bushfires. And with all the rain and flooding in the eastern states, you might be thinking bushfires wouldn't be much of a worry right now. But parts of the eastern states and the southwest of Western Australia are being warned, be prepared for an above normal fire season.
0: We've seen a very wet year over the lead up to this summer. Some of the wettest uh, rainfall records in record that we've had particularly along the eastern seaboard of Australia. What that's actually done for us is set up a situation with a lot of grass growth and we also, in Western Australia, we still also have um, some very dry parts of the landscape that have above-average potential.
2: A little preview of what you're going to hear on The World today right after the one o'clock news. Three to one, heading to Mouche now for the results of today's sheep sale. Terry Birkin, hello. How did it go today?
7: Hi, Belinda. Today's yarding consisted of around 1,000 less lambs and an increase of approximately 1,000 more mutton for a similar total as last week of 4,928. Heavy in trade lambs were more available for processors today, while restockers again were keen on purchasing ewes for breeding. Pricing remained firm for quality, but bigger ones of station sheep and tail end sheep were also presented with not a lot of interest for these categories and as a result selling cheaper. Young store lambs made from $42 to $85, while light lambs were selling from $61 to $107. Trade lambs returned $106 to $149, and heavy lambs sold up to $156. Lightweight old-season lambs were selling from $10 to $81, while the heavier types made up to $148. Primarino Weather hoggets were making up to $109, while Marina U hoggets returned up to $106. Crossbred and Dorper Hoggett sold to $120, and younger rams were selling up to $101. Bony ewes made $30 to $72, medium ewes were selling up to $95, and heavy ewes returned up to $111. Older weathers sold to $120, and mature rams from $10 to $60. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service.
2: Terry, thank you very much for that. And tomorrow you'll head off to Catanning for the results of the sheep market. A couple of minutes to one, and earlier in the hour you heard from the state's chief veterinarian, Michelle Roden, who was saying that Western Australia's testing protocols for virulent foot rot are reasonably robust, but she said, look, nothing's ever 100%. And, of course, this follows the news that virulent foot rot has been detected in wa with a ram imported from the eastern states testing positive to this reportable disease. In response to that, this from Ron, I know a farm that's had foot rot for nearly 20 years. They have 20,000 breeding ewes for the prime lamb market. They have no intention to eradicate the disease. I spoke to the same farmer on the weekend who said he can't get shearers to go to the property. He calls them weak. I heard of a wool classer at this property who was there for years saying it's a disgrace. The shed is falling down and the sheep are always loose and stink with foot rot, lousy and have foot rot, smell of foot rot. Is this where the industry is heading, blaming the hardest working people in the country for your laziness? Uh, This too, God help us if foot and mouth gets in, if that's how they handle situations now, This too, every single sheep in that truck walked off the same loading ramp and stood in the same holding yard as the infected sheep. Hopefully everyone who had sheep on that truck have been contacted and are isolating the imported sheep. As far as I know, they have all been contacted. There are six properties involved in the traceback. And this great interview with a health officer about foot rot, getting a straight answer out of her was like pulling teeth. Thank you for that, Rex. Time for the news, one o'clock.